Mind Session. This is Patrick Lillis, and glad you're here, glad you're listening, glad everybody's okay. And uh, it's exciting, the spring has sprung, and uh, you know, I want to congratulate everybody who's graduated from their different programs. It's that time of year where, you know, people are graduating, summer's here, we're in a place where people are vaccinated, you know, a lot of activity outside, which I'm loving to seeing people, looking forward to more indoor activity in the fall, you know, specifically going to the theater. Funny, I went to a movie the other day, went to see The Killing of Two Lovers, which I I mentioned only because I was about to say an indie film, but the movie was great. I really enjoyed it, but I can't tell if movies are back or not. I don't know if, if we were socially distanced in the theater or it's just not a blockbuster, but it was so nice just to sit and watch something on a big screen. And I am looking forward to doing that in the theater probably starting in the fall. I keep talking about it because I'm excited about it. I can't wait to get back to the normalcy. And uh, one thing about graduation, because seeing people online, Center College, Shenandoah, the colleges we've worked with a couple of times, I'm just very proud of uh, all that have graduated. And I directed Alex uh, Riyadh's final play at Juilliard, and the cast was amazing, and that experience was great. And congratulations to Alex for finishing your time there, and looking forward to what happens next. Yeah, and really just uh, glad that we're at a point where things are transitioning, and I think they're transitioning back to where we're all going to be active. This week, talked to Jose Solis, a drama critic and journalist. Um, He was in hometown and country in Honduras when we talked, and it's a beautiful piece you should see. We talk a little bit about it in the New York Times that he wrote about going to the theater there. And I met Jose a couple of couple of years ago, 17, 2017, I think. Uh, he wrote the first article of the farm that was in American Theater Magazine. We talk about that. He was talking about the College Collab and Micheline's play. And um, it was just great. I wanted to talk to him because I feel like I'd never, you know, we talked, I think, almost to every discipline or, you know, designers, producers, stage managers, actors, writers, directors, and um, hadn't talked to a critic or a journalist, and he's doing great things, and we talk about them, but uh, but I thought as everybody was graduating programs, I thought, oh, there's all these people who love theater and love to have a passion for it, and, you know, some of the passions that I've come across lately is a lot of students are talking about, oh, I want to go into dramaturgy, I want to go into maybe non-traditional, you know, not, I don't want to be an actor or director. They're not saying, you know, but other aspects of the arts. And I thought, oh, it'd be great to talk to somebody who's doing that as a journalist. And I, I love the conversation with Jose because you'll hear that what got him into it is purely his love of the art, uh, love of film, and then eventually love of theater. So it's a great conversation. And the one thing that he talks about is, you know, just you'll hear is his passion for it. But also one of the reasons of when I talked to him is he started the BIPOC Critics Lab that then just to make sure that there is opportunity for BIPOC journalists and people who want to do that. And I thought that was great. And then he also started, I think it's a YouTube channel. I was listening to it. So I was thinking podcast, but it's also visual of uh, Token Theater Friends. And it has a great tagline that we talk about also, which is we're not talking about representation. We are representation. And I think he's amazing because he's very active on Twitter and talks about it. And when we talk about wanting to have a conversation with people about art 
and just creating the opportunities that he wants. He wants more representation, you know, it's funny, he's not talking about representation, he is representation, so creating opportunities for, you know, artists like him to have opportunities to engage in the art and doing it very successfully. And I also want to say that uh, Token Theater Friends is supported by individual donations, so I recommend checking it out, and if you like it, uh, support it. It's very, it's a really cool conversation about all different art projects that are happening and what's happening you know, now. Uh, they're talking about the things that are happening during the pandemic and they're open to all forms of theater. And I think it's a, it's a very insightful conversation uh, program. And I also think it would, the conversation with Jose is great. Uh, so looking forward to sharing that with you. And if you, you know, really plug like, oh, support this, support that. But I think Token Theater Friends is worth supporting and checking out. And uh, but with that, I'm going to let you listen to my incredibly enjoyable conversation with Jose. And with that, play ball. I might go back to New York, and if not, maybe probably somewhere in Europe. Or I might stay in Latin America, because I haven't lived here in a while. <laughs> yeah. Um... I, I read the the beautiful piece in the Times about going back to the theater and made me, it was just, it was lovely. And it was like a reminder of why we go, you know, it was so great. And I, I also liked just the idea of finding that in your hometown, you know, it sounded beautiful. Yeah. For a total Wizard of Oz nerd, like I am, it was very, it was a very Dorothy coming back from Oz moment. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's a perfect reference. Um, I, I'm going to jump. One of the reasons I wanted to talk is I, but besides all the exciting and amazing things that you're doing right now is I, I haven't talked to a theater reviewer, journalist, and it's our third season. And, and I like to talk the farm cultivates all aspects of the career. And I was curious, besides your love of, I know you love film and you love theater. What, got you into it? What said, oh, I want to write about this? Movies, basically. When I was very little, I uh, I was a very, uh, hold on, let me try to find a way to say this that doesn't sound like I had like a Dickensian childhood, because I totally didn't. But I was a very lonely child in the sense that I, um, you know, I'm the eldest of three brothers, and my two brothers, when they were born, were all like a few years apart. Like we're just like they called us like they called us a marimba when we were together because it was like me and then my brother and then so people would call us a marimba. Uh, and my two brothers, I guess, because they're uh, among other reasons because they're straight, right? They were able to bond over things like playing sports and going out to play you know, rough house with their friends and be all muddy and dirty and have their clothes torn and video games and all those things that because I was growing up as a queer child, I, I had no interest whatsoever in going to play, you know, like cowboys and, you know, like trying to like rob the train or like uh, cops and thieves. Like I had no interest in any of that. I was always really bad at video games. And all of that. So I was a lonely child in the sense that while my brothers were, uh, you know, away doing their thing, I found refuge in books and in movies, basically. I 
I always say that when I die, if that thing about, you know, like people say that you see your life flash, right? Like past, like in, in your mind and you see like your entire life flash past you. I've always thought that when my time comes to die, I'm gonna see, uh, it's gonna be like the end of Cinema Paradiso for me. Like I'm gonna see a reel and it's probably gonna be made up of like my favorite moments from all the art that I love and especially movies. Because growing up, I remember when I was very little, I, um, I, I, I remember my, my great grandma's house where my grandma lived after she died and where my dad moved in after he and my mom divorced, my grandma had a VCR player and on top of the VCR, there were three tapes. They had Rebecca, they had Casablanca and they had Citizen Kane. So I remember just watching those movies constantly growing up because I was always hanging out with the adults, right? Like I was really bored with the kids. So I was hanging out with the adults and I would watch Gone with the Wind and Gaslight. And my great aunt loved Waterloo Bridge starting, starring uh, Vivian Lee. So that was my childhood. I loved black and white movies and I loved classic Hollywood musicals and all that. So basically my weekends were like, I would go to the movies, like my dad would take me to the movies, but then we would go see things like, I don't know, like Jean-Claude Van Damme action pics because it was the early nineties or like Mortal Kombat, or, you know, you name it, whatever was big back then. Because where I'm from in Honduras, we didn't really have, we don't have art houses. We don't have art, art house cinemas. We don't have independent cinemas. So we got the blockbusters, whatever Americans wanted, that's what we got. But I was lucky enough that because I was growing up in a household with so many really old women, <laughs> they loved, uh, all those classic movies that ended up being my education, basically. So when I was around 10 years old, I had a journal and, and my mom gave me a journal for Christmas or something like that. No, I'm lying. I stole my mom's journal. Like she, Someone gave her a journal and she's not a journaler. So I was like, can I have it? And she was, she was like, sure. And I started writing about my life, right? About my daily life. And as a 10 year old, I really had, I didn't have much of, you know, like it wasn't a very interesting life is what I'm saying. Basically I wrote about going to school and coming back home. So what, <laughs> so what happened was that somewhere um, probably around June, it was probably 1996, somewhere I was 10 years old and somewhere around June, you can totally see the shift in my really old first journal where I stopped writing about my life and about going to school and about my classmates and about my parents. And I dedicated my journal exclusively to writing about movies that I was watching and TV shows that I was watching. And I would write this little like summaries. I didn't know what they were called. I wrote this little summaries and I would try to draw. Uh, I loved drawing when I was a kid and I would try to draw my favorite scenes so I could remember them forever. And at some point, my father realized that what I was doing was like very proto-criticism, right? So he started investing in my informal education because I was so little. So he would buy me um, timeout magazines or he would buy me Entertainment Weekly, which we got like a month late. And I started reading all the movie reviews by people like Lisa Schwartzbaum and Glenn Kenny 
And then I got interested in the French critics and I started reading Andre Bazan and I started reading, uh, you know, Truffauts and Godard's film criticism when I was uh, 12 or something like that. So when I was a teenager, I had run out of space with my notebooks. I had so many notebooks that I decided that what I wanted to do instead was save that somewhere online. And I started a GeoCity. Do you remember GeoCities? I do. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I started a GeoCities blog and then I, my dad bought me a domain. Like he spent like $40 and a domain for me when I was 16. And I had my own domain where I wrote about movies. And then like a snowball effect that, you know, gave path to me starting to write for American blogs and publications when I was a teenager. And then, yeah, and now here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, well, first of all, thank, thank, you, thank God for your dad's investing in that and recognizing that it's really great. And. I loved reading, you know, the idea of the putting it online because I thought it's so great that we have access, you know, like think about if it was 10 years earlier, you know, where would that journal go? How would people know? How would you get connected to all of a sudden your writing can get out into the world? How did it become that you were writing for other organizations? It, it's really it's clear that your love for it came about. And it's interesting at such a young age to be studying to read, you know, to get invested in something that you're actually learning by who's writing what, who's good, who do you like? Um, but how did it, how did you go from your journal to other publications? How did people find you? How did you find them? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't very popular in school, as you can imagine, if I was the big nerd with all the movie books, right? Uh, so what happened was that when I had my little movie blog and domain, I, when Titanic came out, in 1997, and I was 11 years old. And when Titanic came out, I became obsessed with that movie. And I remember growing up knowing what the Academy Awards were, because I would be like scroll, you know, like zapping my TV. Like, it's so funny that kids these days don't know what zapping is, right? Uh, but I would be like zapping. And I remember, you know, like I remember, it probably was like the, the 1996 Oscars where I was just like trying to find something to watch before going to bed. And they were singing one of the songs from Pocahontas because it was nominated for best original song. So I knew kind of what the Oscars were, but when Titanic came out and I thought it was the greatest thing that had ever been made, I thought that, you know, the Oscars needed to recognize how great this thing that I loved so much was. And I became obsessed with movie awards. So. I started watching the Oscars and I started watching like the Golden Globes and um, anything movie award related, you know, like if people were gonna go give a speech with a trophy, I would watch it. So around the time when Titanic came out and I became obsessed with that, that didn't stop for the next like 10 years or so. Like I was a huge like uh, awards nerd. And what happened was that around the time every year in the spring when I knew that the uh, awards were gonna happen, I started going on Google, Yahoo probably, because I don't, I don't think I knew what Google was. I started going on Yahoo or MSN.com and trying to find uh, things about some of the movies that I loved. Like I wanted the things that I loved to be, you know, recognized by the Academy. And then I remember that every time when the newspaper came out every Friday and I would open it to see the new 
films released, excuse me, that week, if they had some sort of like, you know, 25 Academy Award nominations like banner on it, I would go see it. So around that time, there was a group of people in America, in New York and in Los Angeles who started turning like awards prognostication and writing about awards into a thing, right? That now has really like gotten out of hand, right? It's like, there's no, there's no uh, nuance anymore. Like movies come out and they live and die by whether they can win an award or not. But around that time, as a little, you know, as a preteen, I loved it so much. And I was so excited seeing like whether Bjork was going to get nominated for Best Actress for Dancing in the Dark, which obviously I learned later the, the Academy doesn't do that. Like they're not that bold. So what I did was that I started writing, I started writing comments on those people's like blogs and websites. And then I started, this sounds very funny, but I started corresponding with them. I would email people who now are huge awards moguls in, in Los Angeles. But back then, because they were, I guess like in their early trains or something, they had no problem speaking to a kid in the third world, right? So I had emails from them where I would be like, do you think that Hillary Swank's really gonna win again? And all that kind of stuff. And because I was so, uh, such an avid follower and reader of what they were doing, they were the ones who started giving me like, would you wanna write a little post for our blog? And stuff like that. And I went to Costa Rica in 2005 to go to film school. And when I, by the time that I left Costa Rica, I was already writing constantly for outlets, you know, they weren't like huge outlets, obviously, right? But they were like outlets in America and the UK and Canada and in Europe. Because the weirdest thing about my entire life is that although I'm a native Spanish speaker and English is my second language, I have never had a criticism job in Spanish. Like I don't, I've never done criticism in Spanish. So by the time yeah, by the time that I went to Costa Rica and I was in school, when I was there, I started writing about theater there um, for local American papers in, in Costa Rica, like the Costa Rica Times and stuff like that. And I was simultaneously writing for outlets in the US, like all those awards people, but also I started writing for this website called Pop Matters. And I was doing all of that from down here. Totally amazing. And then you went to film school. Did you go to film school to write about film or to make film? Well, I I have never wanted to be a maker because I, I it's not for me. I I know that. But my reasoning was, you know, my parents didn't. Well, my dad didn't really want to let me go. He didn't want me to move. Right. He didn't want me to go anywhere. But having come out recently in a country that's like extremely conservative and homophobic and where that homophobia often leads to violence, I was like, let me go or I'm gonna get murdered here. And if I go, I can also go study something similar to what I wanted. Cause like in Honduras, there, was, there wasn't really a culture around culture basically. There was no need for museums, I mean, there was a need, but people didn't clamor for it in the way that I that I needed. Because since when I was very little, I started going to, I started traveling with my parents and with my grandma, and I would go to museums and I would go to Broadway shows and I would see that, and then I would come back here, where one of the local sayings is that in Honduras, 
you can have one of two hobbies. You can get into soccer or you can drink. So for me, there was no place for me here. And I found out that there was a school in Costa Rica that had recently started uh, a film you know, degree, right? And I, I read the syllabus and I saw what the program was about and it was about making films. But the first two years had every semester had a film history class and then like a screenwriting class and a theory class. And I was like, okay, I have to go and I can ignore all like the how to set up the camera thing and how to change the lenses because I don't care about that. And I could just fully immerse myself in theory. And one of the reasons why I really wanted to go there was because they had a huge library. So while I was flunking my, you know, my tech classes and all my camera classes, I was taking home like up to like four movies a day. And I was watching, you know, Italian neorealism and French movies and Asian cinema. And they had the biggest collection of Central American film in Central America, probably. And I was able to discover that in my part of the world, people had been making movies and people had been making art, but it wasn't as widespread as, as I wanted it to be. But it was also there in Costa Rica that I was able to start going to the theater. Because when I lived in Honduras, there was, maybe I went to the theater five times in my in the 18 years that I lived here. A couple of times it was because the school made us go because, you know, like the national um, symphony would be playing or something like that. One time my great aunt took me to the opera and that's the only time as far as I can remember that I think the opera actually came to my hometown. And I went to see the Barber of Seville when I was like eight. And then they would also have this very didactic uh, plays about, you know, violence and about the police and stuff like that. And then there's, there was also like another segment of the theater community here that was fully dedicated to entertainment. And by entertainment, I mean sex comedies. So it was a rotation of plays about like someone sleeping with someone's wife and then getting caught and then hilarity ensued, right? So when I went to Costa Rica was the first time, and I had been to Broadway already. So every time I was here, I was like, why can't I go to Broadway here? And when I went to Costa Rica, they had those sex comedies and they had all that didactic theater as well, but they also had Brecht. And they were also constantly doing like Oscar Wilde and they were doing, um, you know, Shakespeare. And they were doing, uh, his, they were doing like adaptations of like Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for instance, stuff like that. And in San Jose, in Costa Rica, that cultural offering was weekly. Like I could go see a different play every week if I wanted to. It wasn't like New York, I couldn't go see a different one each day, but it was there where I became, I fell in love with theater and the urgency of live performance uh, to the point that when I moved to New York in 2012, I kind of felt that I was cheating on movies with theater. <laughs> but um, yeah, does that, Sorry, I feel like I'm rambling. Does that answer what you were No, that's so great. Asking? It's so great. I loved hearing all that because what ultimately, it's funny to hear like once a week because I also, you know, reading about doing uh, a theater friend and um, reading where you saw, we're going to the theater 300 nights a year, probably. Um, I think New York had to be a place you would, you know, it's either here or, or London or, you know, I don't know where you're, can go to feed that that addiction. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, besides here, and uh, you know, this is a, it's great. So is that what brought you here? Was it the idea of culture and theater and just the access to it that brought it you here? It was two things. It was in 2011. Yeah, in 2011, when I was in Costa Rica, I, although Costa Rica is a country that I love dearly, I lived there for seven years. And it's a country that's very progressive in terms of, you know, culture and society. But ironically, I was gay bashed there. And the place where I least expected to be, you know, a victim of violence because of my sexual orientation. But in 2011, I was gay bashed in San Jose. And that led to a period of darkness and depression because I had left my home country in fear of that happening to me. And then I found it in the place that I had chosen as my adoptive home, right? So I decided that it was now or never, I was gonna go to New York. And because I had been writing for film outlets mostly, uh, by then it was very easy for me. I thought it was gonna be very easy for me to just go to New York and get a job writing about movies, right? Or get a job uh, doing anything else or doing whatever, but I would have the access to the movies and the theater and all of that. What I didn't know was how much theater there was in New York City. Like that blew my mind. And when I realized that I could go in fact, that I could in fact go see a different show every single night, I shopped movies and I would end up going to the movies like either after, you know, if the show was like a 90 minute show that let out at 9.30, I would go to the movies at 10 p.m. Uh, or stuff like that, or on the weekends. So I, but I also, something else that happened was that I was able to get, I was able to immerse myself in that culture of like the awards things that I had loved growing up. And I was very heartbroken and disappointed to realize that many people that I had idolized when I was a teenager in Honduras were in fact quite sexist and homophobic and racist. And it was a field where I would hear, I would go to a screening and I would hear some of the most disgusting things that you can imagine being uttered by people whose writing I had memorized as a kid. And that's the way that they talk in real life. So that really broke my heart and in, the very first year that I was in New York and, uh, you know, the very first spring, I mean, in 2013, was in fact the last time that I watched the Oscars. Just, I was so disgusted by the culture around film and around film criticism and around film journalism that I just couldn't bring it to myself to, to watch and love what I had grown up loving so much. And that meant that I had more time to learn about theater and more time to dedicate myself to theater. So that's, that's how my theater thing started uh, in New York. But yeah, like basically New York was my third place where I was running away from something. Yeah, well, I'm, I have to say, you know, it's, I just have to acknowledge that it's really tragic about Costa Rica being where that happened because you went there intentionally to avoid thinking that might happen at your home. Uh, and then when you get here and you're working in the, around the, when you said the, the homophobic and the sexism 
Yeah, I mean Hollywood film, sure, but you're you're. I feel like you're talking about the journalism as well, like just the people who are writing and how they're thinking about it and and what they're choosing to focus on is not where your heart is and what you want to be doing. No, it was just gross. Like I I heard some of my heroes calling women derogative terms and laughing about it or making fun of people's accents in movies or saying that they would never go watch a movie if it was subtitled and things like that. And that just, it was really, it was really sad. Yeah, that's, that's, all of that is sad, especially that I'm thinking, especially the subtitle because you're the, you're in the place where it's considered one of the global leaders of film, but so narrow focused. Well, I will just say, luck, you know, luckily, for the theater, you got to focus there um, and go to it. And then, and then, how do you discover? It feels like as I'm clocking the timeline. I'm like, it's not long after that that you start that you're like the chief theater person for Stage Buddy, and that that starts to happen for you. Did that? How did that? How did it go from having a permanent relationship from being freelance to being in the city, to being new to like, I'm part of an organization. So every, I feel like my whole life story, it's really boring in the way that it's me doing the same things over and over and over again. So when that happened, for instance, that was the first job that I got in New York. And like I said, I just wanted a job and I just didn't care what I was doing as long as I was able to go to the theater and go to movies and go to the Met because I love that freaking museum so much. Um, so what happened was that I was hired at Stage Buddy, which was a startup. Like it had just started basically when I was hired and I was hired to do marketing and I was hired to do like social media, like management and stuff like that. And I, no offense to marketers and social media people, but I have always found that to be extremely easy to do. And I was able to, let's say that, you know, it didn't work out exactly this way, but let's say if I had to work eight hours a day uh in my job i would be done within the first three hours with all my social media and marketing stuff and i would have five hours to be on google basically right and what happened was that because that website was all about listing entertainment in in new york i asked my boss if he would be okay with me starting to write blog posts and writing reviews of shows also so i was like okay if we have listings and stuff and we have we're telling people what's out there. Wouldn't it be cool if someone was also telling them if this thing was good or not, basically, right? Like if someone, you know, someone in the website had gone seen this thing and would have a, a more fully formed opinion than just like repeating the press release, right? My boss said yes, because he knew that I was already fulfilling my other obligations. So that's how that happened. Basically, that wasn't my job, really. Like I was the marketing person. And I was able to squeeze myself and almost force myself into an industry that didn't have a place for me. I created that job for myself there. And it was the same rinse and repeat as when I had my movie blog, my output for that website for Stage Buddy was so constant that by the time that I was laid off in 2018, I had written over a thousand uh, pieces, including reviews and interviews and you name it, 
And I also had edited probably twice as much from other contributors who were writing movie reviews and movie articles for us and also theater. So I kind of see it as if you're yelling every day, right, from your little place in the world, someone's gonna hear you at some point. And that's how that happened as well. Like I I was just being loud, I guess, on Twitter and my my output was so constant that people couldn't deny that I existed anymore. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting because I, I love that. I mean, one of the things I, I follow you on Twitter and you're constantly engaged. Uh, I am not a Twitter user. I am a, a voyeur, you know, um, <laughs> I go Very and hit talk. But I go and I'll, and, and it's interesting because I'm like, oh, you're one of the more engaged people because of that. It's undeniable. And I think when I'm thinking of like, oh, well, how does somebody start? How do they get their job? How do they start to get invited to review, to be published? And I'm like, oh, well, you, I'll ask that question in a formal way. But what I'm hearing is that you, you do it and you have so many outlets to do it that you start to get recognized for doing it. Um, and people start to trust you which is really one of the things that I think is true about a reviewer's voice anyways, right? Is you want to read somebody you trust if, if you're looking at it for, should I see this? Should I not see this? And that trust is built up over, it's either built up through an institution and then over time with the individual. You're right about that. It's the way that I've always seen it. And I'm sorry if this sounds very corny, but the way that I've always seen it was because I remember what it was like growing up with no one really to engage with me and just talk about movies and talk about books and talk about art in a constant way. Every time that I read those reviews uh, by people who were either in America or dead, I would imagine conversations with them. And what I wanted my entire life was just to have conversations with people about the things that I loved and the things that they loved. So the way that I think of you know, the way that I see my work as is I feel like every time that I do something with criticism, every time I write a review, every time I write an interview, or every time that I just put out an episode of my show, I feel like I'm just really putting, you know, messages in bottles and just throwing them out in the ocean, hoping that someone's going to find them and write me back. And that's why I'm so engaged on Twitter. That's why I'm that's why my, I hate the word productive, but I guess that's the way that I would be described in, in, you know, like in capitalism. But that's why my output is so constant because I just really want to have conversations with people. I want to, you know, I don't want to be people's like best friend or anything like that, but I want to be that friend that people can talk to about things that they, that they like or things that they don't like or learn about things that they don't even know exist, for instance. I, I've always thought that, you know, like I, I loved Lisa Schwartzbaum so much growing up and I would disagree with her very often. Like I think she gave Moulin Rouge, which is my favorite movie, she gave it a really bad review. But I loved the way that she articulated why she didn't like the movie and why the movie didn't work for her. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be someone Lisa Schwartzbaum and be someone that people would read my work and be like, this is someone that I want to have a beer with or go, you know, 
to the park with and just sit on a bench and talk about movies. I think that's such a great way to think about it because that's what I want. You know, when you when I was reading that idea of it being a conversation from you, I think, yeah, that's what I want. I want somebody to talk about the work. I don't need it to be, I want to say, chronicled or or put it in a historical context per se, as much as engaging with what's happening right now and what your experience was and 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 what the merit of it was. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. I remember, it's so funny because I remember, and you know, like in many ways, I feel like my career and my life happened so fast, but it really hasn't. Like I have been working since I was 10 years old to have a career, but it just feels that it happened very fast. Because like, for instance, like I, I went to New York in 2012 and no one knew who I was. And I'm not saying that I'm like famous or anything like that right now, but I remember specifically the day when I went to see a play uh, by Mac Rogers, the Honeycomb Trilogy. And I remember being in a bench uh, in Washington Square Park and for the first time seeing a copy of American Theater Magazine. I had never heard of the magazine before. And within six months, I was in the magazine writing about you, I think, actually. <laughs> was that your first article? It was, uh, it's my first time being in American Theater Magazine. And I read that magazine in college. And it was such a, it's one of my great thrills to have been in that that article, which you wrote about the college collab and Micheline's play. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it was my second, but it was, yeah, it was, it was, it happened so fast. Like I remember not knowing what the magazine was and then I was in the magazine. And, uh, let me get to a really, yeah, let me do a quick thing. How does that happen? Meaning, do you pitch the story? Cause I know that somebody reached out to Emily Owens, reached out and said, there's this program happening. Do you, do you then reach out to American theater about having them hire you to write the article? in that very practical business thing that I'm just curious about that I never know how it comes about. Uh, okay. So this is a time where for me to get talk about something that I feel really awkward about, and I don't know how this is going to land. And I often feel that it makes me sound like a douchebag, but I don't know how to pitch most of the work that I have done in my career. I've been asked to do almost every publication that I write for has, they asked me to do it. Like, cause I'm so bad at pitching. I am so bad because I have so many ideas constantly that by the time that I'm ready to send out a pitch, that idea has been replaced by something else. And I end up never pitching anything. That's why when I was at Stage Buddy, uh, my output was so constant because there, if I had an idea, I could write it right away. And I could ask publicists, can I interview your client? And I could do it, you know, like in real time while the process of like coming up with a pitch and fine tuning that pitch and sending it out to a publication seems so bureaucratic to me that I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to, you know, move in bureaucracy. I don't, I, I'm also very patient. So that story that I wrote about, about, about you and the form, uh, initially is play and the college productions that was pitched to me and yeah, I'm not the best advice giver about pitching right. did, when like young people ask me. Oh, I didn't know how that happened if did so American theater pitches. And I'm just gonna alleviate the douchebag part because I don't think that's true. 
Um, what I what I hear is not that you don't know how to pitch. It's that you keep you keep creating. Not you know we can talk about output, but you also and it may be rinse repeat in the sense, but you keep creating opportunities for yourself and not only for recently not only for yourself but for others. You know that we're clearly that we will talk about very soon. But you know, so I don't think it's. I think that's amazing that people are reaching to you and they should because of all that output, they're recognizing you as a, as a very serious artist, a very serious collaborator, as a very serious journalist writing and thinking about these things. Um, but I hear is that you are constantly creating the opportunity. Um, I'm, I might jump on that opportunity and talk about like, cause you, you started, you initiated, you founded, right? The BIPOC Critics Lab. Right. And I know you're in partnership now with the Kennedy Center, but that did that just start on your own? Uh, yeah. So, OK. So what happened with that was that when, you know, when I had like when film became my mistress and theater became my husband or whatever, uh, I then realized that obviously uh, theater criticism and journalism also had its issues. Right. And there was also sexism there and there was also homophobia and, you know, racism and you name it, right? But I realized that because the theater industry was so much smaller than the film industry, right? In terms of its reach and in terms of the publications that were covering theater, I realized that this was a place where I could actually make a difference. Like I never felt that I could make a difference in in movies because they're so big and they're so wide and, I mean, luckily, because of their reach, they don't need me. I mean, there's theater critic, sorry, there's film critics in every country, right? So there's film critics of every race and ethnicity and with every cultural background where I was like, okay, so they're okay. Someone's gonna do this over here. I can go focus here. Because what I realized there was also that most of my colleagues and most of the people whose work I started reading when I was learning about theater about the theater industry, they were all, you know, mostly uh, middle-aged, uh, straight white men, right? So I realized there that, sure, I love this thing so much now and I'm going to the theater every night, but I don't have friends to go to the theater with or the people that I go to the theater with that I'm gonna have a conversation about the show afterwards are all from like, you know, like, the same cultural backgrounds. Like they probably only speak English. They maybe have never left the United States. Maybe, you know, maybe they don't have a wide knowledge of what cultures are like outside of New York City, for instance. And I realized that I needed to do something. Like I want, again, I wanted to create my friends. I wanted to create the circle that where I could get feedback and the circle where I could be understood. So around 2015, I started, when I was at Stage Buddy actually, I started uh, working with, we call them interns then. And that's something else that I, I now really stand against. Like I, it's unfair for people to call someone an intern and not pay them. And it was, you know, that unfortunately was not up to me to pay people. But now just having been a part, you know, having grown up also 
Because when I was working, you know, when I was writing for all those publications that I'm telling you when I was a teenager, I never made a cent. So in fact, if I'm not mistaken, I think the first piece that I wrote for American theater, uh, and it was the piece that I wrote before yours, it was a piece about the Soul Project. That was the first time that I had ever been paid for my work as a critic in my life. So um, I wanted people like me to be a part of this. Because that's also something that, you know, I left Honduras in 2005 and I left knowing deep in my soul and in my heart that I wasn't the only little boy in a country of 9 million people who wanted to be a critic. I knew that. And I haven't found that little boy or little girl in the time that I've been back, but I know they exist. So I was like, you know, it's almost like, I don't want to go into like alien, like conspiracy theories or anything like that, but it's impossible that we are the only of a kind, right? So I, around 2015, when I started writing for other publications and I started getting paid for my work as a critic, I started pitching around the idea that we needed to create a workshop for critics of color specifically, because there's many reasons for that. Uh, first, it was necessary because, you know, again, we needed to have the cultural background and that cultural, um, what's the word, Compet uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'll go with knowledge. We needed people to know the cultures that they were discussing. We needed people to know uh, that people could have different lives and worldviews that differed from theirs and they were valid as well. But also because in the film world, uh, there were workshops for starting critics, for budding critics, but theater, especially in New York, I mean, you mentioned it yourself, like it's either London or New York, right? And for the theater capital of the world to not have a workshop or to not have a program for budding critics, especially aware of racial injustice and inequity in the United States, I found that completely preposterous. And what happened was that I started, I created, you know, I came up with this idea of a program, a 10 week program, where it would be almost like grad school, like a crash grad school, right? Because that's another thing that prevents people from becoming critics. I mean, they think maybe that they need to go get a PhD in drama in order to start writing or in order to be a critic. And I don't think that's true. I, I dropped out of every school that I was in. And in fact, my only degree is a degree in graphic design that I got in two and a half years because my parents were, we're gonna murder you if you don't get a diploma soon. So I knew that, you know, and I was, I was writing for all these places. And I, so I knew that I didn't need a master's degree and I didn't need a PhD and I didn't need to go into student debt and spend the rest of my life paying for my student loans in order to do what I wanted to do since, you know, since the time I was a child, right? So what happened was that people would agree with me that this was necessary, but they would not either help me with funding or they would not help me move the thing forward. So it was always just me going to meetings and pitching this thing. That's the one thing that I've always pitched the lab. And it was this thing that I would constantly pitch and people would say, sure, this we need to make this happen. But it would always end at, we're glad that we're having the conversation. But then the conversation never turned into action. 
So after years of that, over six years of me trying to make this happen and almost giving up, there was the convergence of two things that are truly horrible, of course, but that I feel in many ways triggered people to finally take action in things that they otherwise wouldn't have. And it was obviously the pandemic that left, you know, that decimated the world and obviously left the theater industry, like, you know, and it turned into a wreck. And then the murder of George Floyd by that policeman. And the feeling of powerlessness that I had in the summer of 2020, being unemployed and the powerlessness that I felt seeing what cops were doing to people in the street, to protesters, and how cynical the government was, uh, you know, the that man's administration was in failing to condemn violence and white supremacy led me to one of like the lowest points that I feel that I've had in my life where I barely wanted to leave my bed because I was so I didn't know what to do. And then I realized, okay, so you're unemployed. You don't have any money right now, but no one does. So what is preventing you from just doing this thing on your own? So I went on Twitter and I, I tweeted that I was starting a pilot program for a critics workshop for, for critics of color. And I basically said, who wants me to mentor them? And people signed up and I got over a hundred uh, DMs and emails from people who read my tweet and said, I want to be a part of this. I was not only humbled, but I thought everyone was insane because they were just trusting me, you know, from Twitter. And on August 9th, so basically, you know, like June and July, I spent, fine, I spent my time fine tuning this project because I thought it was the best way in which I could contribute to the world and give something to the world. I wanted to create, I guess I'll say I want to create an army, but that sounds very, I don't know, like- Take it. Yeah, violent. But, but why not, you know? Yeah I, wanted to, yeah, I wanted to create an army of critics of color so that when theater, when live theater and theater and community reopened, I didn't want them to have that excuse of we didn't know any critics of color anymore. I didn't want them to be able to say that because that was a lie before, but I was gonna make sure that that would be a lie for the rest of time. So on August 9th, 2020, I started the pilot program for the lab. I had originally said to myself that I was gonna be able to handle working with five people, but I'm a total pushover. And I, that's why I ended up overworking myself and burning out. And I ended up, uh, <laughs> I ended up having eight critics who over the next 10 weeks sat with me every Sunday for a couple of hours as we talked about how to pitch, which I mean, I don't do, but I, don't, but I know how to do, uh, how to pitch, how to deal with publicists, how to deal with your editor, how to write your first draft, how to start, you know, audio criticism or how, how to start video criticism. So I also insist that criticisms need or uh, this idea that criticism has imposed on us, that criticism is only written is white supremacy. And it's by default, you know, re excluding people who 
maybe don't care about writing. Maybe people who aren't great writers, but who are great, um, you know, speech givers or people who are incredible on video or people who are great animators, for instance, or people who are uh, really good at illustration or stuff like that. Like I wanted those people who had a different voice to be able to use their voice and to put it into practice and the field that I love so much. So about three weeks into my pilot uh, that I was doing in my apartment in Brooklyn, uh, I got a call from the Kennedy Center. Like I, I, I'm telling you, it's rinse and repeat. Like the Kennedy Center called me and they were like, we saw what you're doing and we want you to do this for us as well. So they asked me if I wanted to do my lab with them. So that partnership was for that one iteration of the lab, which then started in November, 2020 and ran through January, 2021. So if anyone's, when, when people listen to this, I'm open to funding. Like I, this is my lab, this is my baby and I will take it where people need it basically. So if you're, um, you know, a theater company or if you're like a multimillionaire listening to this and you want to fund this, let us know and I'll, I'll make it happen. Good. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll make sure to say that again. And I'll say it when we, when we drop the article, when we drop the episode, um, that it's because it is self-funded, which I think is great. And I also love when you just the idea that you said, not everything has to be written, you know, and not, you know, I take for granted the fact that, you know, there are different, I've, you know, you hear, like Siskel and Ebert, you know, I heard them on TV, so it's not written. I didn't go to the written reviews of theirs, you know, but you but you don't think about it because when you're thinking about the legitimacy of theater, you think of opening up the times, you know, and seeing the review. And But I loved when you said that, that it was a, I didn't think about it as white supremacy, but I did think of when you said it's a barrier because that may not be what the person's strength or skill is. And it's just so much more inclusive because if you're thinking about having that conversation on the park bench in Washington Square Park, I don't need need to have that conversation through writing. I can have it through talking. I can have it through however you communicate the best. I was also curious, I think it's really inclusive. And the other idea that I was curious about is what do you think, besides the practical, which I like that you outline, what do you think somebody needs to be a, a reviewer, theater, arts, culture, journalist? Like, Because I think it's not necessarily formal education, not the PhD. So what do you think they do need to bring? They need the opportunity, basically. They need to know that they're capable of doing this. And, you know, when I talk about white supremacy in terms of written um written criticism, I think about the fact that in my home country, for instance, there's a 70% rate of illiteracy. People in my home country, because they are so poor, they don't know how to read or write. So does that mean that they're not allowed or, or does that mean that we should not invite them into arts or into criticism because they can't read or write? I don't think so. And that's one of the obstacles that I feel, you know, obviously I could talk about paywalls and all that, but all that, it's a whole other story. But just thinking about how, you know, I I've, I've, I think about theater, you know, theater basically started with oral tradition, right? And like passing stories and making sure that those stories survived back when people didn't even know how to write. 
So why did we suddenly try to put that in a, in a cage, right? Like why was this tradition that started around the fire, right? With people not having television <laughs> centuries ago. Why are we trying to rob people of that? Because they're not, you know, they're not, they don't have the academic preparation or they don't have the means or they don't have something as, um, you know, simple sounding as internet. Like why are we denying people the opportunity to be a part of this world? Because they're less fortunate than, than some of us in terms of uh, money and like our position in the world. So the opportunities that they need. I mean, I, I, one of the other things that I started doing when I was in New York was that I, I used my comp ticket that I got to go to press nights at the theater and I started giving it away to people of color on Twitter. And I told them, you know, all you need to be is a people of color and you don't even have to talk to me. I mean, we're probably gonna sit next to each other because that's how tickets work with publicists. But I was like, I don't even need you to talk to me. Like, you don't have to feel that we're out, like hanging out. Like, if you don't wanna talk to me, you can say hi and bye when we're done. But I just really want you to be able to share this thing that I'm lucky enough to get for free. And I want you to be a part of it as well. So it's the same. I think the same goes for criticism with the people. And everyone was so lovely. You know, like I met over 200 people that went to see shows with me in the three, uh, in the, in the two years that I did that before the pandemic. And everyone was super lovely. And some people did want to talk and some people did want to have a drink. And they were like, do you want to go grab a bite? And with people who had never been to the theater before, people who couldn't afford to go to the theater would often have the most incredible insight about a show. Things that I had never read, you know, any of my colleagues write about or mention. And this person who maybe had never gone to a show before was suddenly illuminating this piece of art in a way that it was absolutely breathtaking. And that made me also realize, why are we not inviting these people into the rooms that we're, you know, where we're celebrating love and inclusivity, allegedly? Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I remember when you were posting that on Twitter and I just thought it was incredibly generous and the right and, and, and such the right hearted and right idea of like, oh, you want to be inclusive? I'm going to be inclusive. I have two. I'm one. Come with me. You know, and it just was beautiful. Um, is out of that is, I, I just want to make sure it's funny. I'm like, could talk forever because I have like, a, I have a couple of questions I want to ask, but one, I just want to make sure to talk about so that people know where Token Theater Friends came from and came out of. And I love the tagline, or I don't know if it's your, call it a tagline, but the idea of we don't talk about representation, we are representation. Um, I like that a lot because I feel like after the George Floyd murder happened and all the change was happening, some people think of it one way, you know, all the theaters were putting out statements and I, I felt in my, my, my spirit was like, I don't want you to tell me what you're going to do. Tell me what you're doing. Tell me what you did, you know, because I, I think, I don't know if you remember, but like the ghost light project came out and I thought a lot of the statements 
at that period were similar to the statements that happened after George Floyd. And I thought, well, it's been it's been four years. You know, like you're making the same statement. What are you doing? And and uh, so I love when you say we're not talking about this. We are this. And uh, and did that that grew out of a similar idea, but it's not the same as the critics lab. It's creating a place for that army and community you're building to actually talk and share their experiences. I can answer that. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> but but what did it come out of? It came out of that precisely. Uh, what happened was uh, the the way that I saw it was, uh, I mean, you've seen how constantly uh, the old guard and criticism are messing up, and they're putting out reviews and pieces of criticism that are transphobic and homophobic and racist. And there's also this thing that I find really disgusting about criticism. And it's the need to tear down what other people have done. I don't know if you've noticed this, you probably have because you're a theater maker, but when a show gets a negative review and when a show gets a trashing, every, everyone and their cousins shares it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And yet maybe that's our failure as a species that we cannot, we're more comfortable destroying each other than celebrating our beauty and the amazing things that we can do. And I started noticing that also with my work. Like I try my very best not to, not to do negative criticism in the sense that I don't enjoy telling people that I don't like something. But I also acknowledge that, and I also ask everyone who engages with my work that they know that this is just my opinion. They don't need to care about what I say, right? So, but knowing that that's very idealistic and that's not necessarily how the world works in practical terms, I measure myself very well because I know the power that I can have in different outlets. So I, you'll never find me, maybe when I was a teenager, maybe when I was like growing up and I thought that was cool, maybe I would do that, right? Like call uh, something garbage, right? Without, uh, I don't know, without even thinking about it twice. But seeing how often people in social media are up in arms asking for the old guard of criticism to reform and to relearn and to educate themselves, it made me realize that the reason why they are so comfortable not changing and not evolving and not learning, and in fact, refusing to learn and saying, we are not going to learn because we are powerful, is their anonymity. And I often ask people, like if I took all like the uh, old guard of criticism and I did like a usual suspects lineup, right? would you be able to identify which critic is which? And people often say, I mean, theater people are like, uh, duh, but most people don't know who these people are, right? And in fact, because they also try not to engage with people on social media and they don't engage with people in the comments, I feel that this is, this anonymity, I compare it to the eggs on Twitter. Well, 
I don't, they're not eggs anymore. But back then it was the eggs who were trolling people, right? People who don't show they, their face and people who don't engage with other human beings at the same level. Uh, and I thought criticism was the same. So my idea with Token Theater Friends was I want people to see us. I didn't mean specifically me because I am incredibly camera shy and I don't, you know, yeah, that's not what I wanted to do. But I knew that it was important that people saw us because that way, if we said something that was completely messed up and wrong and cruel and inhuman, we would be made accountable because people were seeing and people were hearing our voices as we said it. And that is what I wish on criticism as a field. I want critics to be human beings. I don't want them to be up in Mount Olympus, just like touring around and just like passing judgment and like throwing lightning bolts at things that they don't like. So that's why when I created Token Theater Friends, the visual component was the most important thing to me. Just thinking about Cisco and Ebert, right? Everyone knew what Cisco and Ebert looked like. So if, I don't know, if Roger Ebert gave someone a trash, a trashing, that artist could perfectly go tell him like, you asshole, I saw you, why you said about my work, right? While with theater criticism, because it's exclusively written for the most part, no one's gonna go to a newspaper critic in the street and grab him and like throw their like, I don't know, like wine at them, right? That doesn't happen. So I knew that in order for criticism to be accountable, we had to show our face and we had to show our voice. And we also had to show people that critics are also human beings and we mess up. And maybe we sometimes say things that are wrong and maybe we say things that are not kind, but because we are talking to people directly and people are seeing us and they're not just like imagining what our voice sounds like, that way they can make us accountable. I want to be accountable and I want criticism to be accountable. So that's why that was, you know, that's what I constantly said. It's for a while, people had the impression that Token Theater Friends was um, a publication that was dedicated exclusively to uplifting artists of color. And of course we do that because that's necessary, right? That's important. But also I came up with the whole concept of we are not talking about representation, we are representation. Because how many times have we heard or have we read the same post by journalists of color, artists of color, demanding that they are treated with dignity and humanity and respect and that always breaks my heart. So my way of seeing that was, I am not going to, uh, my plight is not to remind you that I am a human being and that I deserve your respect. What I will do is that I will do my work. And if you want to respect me or not, that's your choice. So I, you know, why for instance, do people expect critics of color to only talk about artists of color when white critics talk about whatever they want constantly, all the time. So instead of having an echo chamber where we would always complain about not being seen, fairly so, right? But instead of like constantly complaining about not being seen and not 
you know, not being respected and not being that, which I think of as suffering porn, I'm going to treat myself with the dignity that the field doesn't treat me with sometimes. So that's why we talk about whatever the hell we want. If we want to talk about an old white ensemble, and if we like the old white ensemble, then good for us or bad for us, whatever. But I'm not going to be bound by what people and the industry expect me to be and do. That's great. But I'm curious, it was interesting. I was surprised to hear that you might not come back uh, because one of my questions I wanted to ask you is what do you think in the reopening? And is it does the role of the theater reviewer, critic, and journalist change? Or or what what should we what should they be doing as the doors are opening and people are coming in person uh, as the time is happening? That's something I was just thinking about when you were talking. It's like, you know, I think during the online pandemic, we've been a lot of a lot of us have been very encouraging and supportive of anything that's happening because people are grateful things are happening, and I hope that that generosity of spirit continues as the doors open and we're now going inside with each other. But I'm curious, reading the idea of being a cheerleader and also being a critic who cannot like something or like something, is there a specific role that you think, is there anything that changes in that role as the pandemic is shifting? Something that I realized living in New York was that I, unfortunately, I mean, I already said this, I'm very impatient and I want radical change. And I think we deserve radical change, but progress and change for that very reason, probably because if it was just like an earthquake, it would just decimate us, right? Like not, no one wants to be shocked out of their existence, right? Like no one wants to have those tower moments where like your entire life just like falls apart. It's impossible. We are after all people and we are not capable of handling such violent change so quickly. And what I realized shortly into the pandemic was that, and I'm not claiming to be a prophet or like anything like that, but I realized that once theater Live theater reopened, I knew that things were not going to change. And I knew that change was not going to happen overnight. And I know a year has been more than overnight. But just like taking into account the way in which American history has moved at a snail pace and just seeing how, you know, even in terms of, I remember the, uh, the day when Joe Biden was finally that torturous week where the news and the media took delight in making us wait for the official announcement, right? That he had won. I remember the feeling and I remember what I saw on social media and what I heard from my friends. And when he was uh, announced as the winner that Saturday, I remember every white person that I know good white people, good liberals, good Democrats or whatever, everyone kind of turned the page. We survived the Republican devil administration. Joe Biden's gonna save us all. So they were comfortable moving on from the work that they hadn't even started. Like they relinquished and they gave this 
responsibility to this administration that so far has continued failing us and continued, you know, um, with the human rights uh, violations and with the imperialism and with the racism and people were promised things that weren't delivered. So I knew that I always think of the theater industry as a microcosm and a representation of the United States. Like the theater industry is the United States in miniature. So if after a pandemic and after we saw George Floyd murdered and you know on television, nothing changed, how could theater change? Uh, how could an industry that has always relied on silence and on pretending that things are okay behind the curtain, how would that change? And I knew that in my heart and I knew that and I saw that and I got tired. And the reason why I was ready to leave New York was because if I had stayed in New York longer, it would have killed me. And I'm not ready to die just yet. I have more to do. I want, you know, to quote that Susan Hayward movie, I want to live. And I just knew that, let's say that my work in New York for now is done. I saw no need for me to be physically present in a city in a country that doesn't want me. During the pandemic, the Trump administration made it almost, not almost, it made it impossible for me to uh, maintain my status and my immigration status. And I saw, for instance, that, that you know, I don't wanna go into like details because I don't wanna bore you or your listeners with like how much the IRS sucks, but they made it so hard for me to make a living because of bureaucratic issues. Uh, that the Trump administration had imposed that not only could I not find work in America, but also if I did work, the IRS was making it impossible almost for me to get paid. So it was that situation where like, okay, they want me to work, but they also, the country has made it impossible for me to get paid. And I realized that I, that's not a way to live. I could not, cross my fingers and hope that all those systems that are in place to keep people like me from being in the United States, I just didn't want to fight that anymore. I didn't want to be, uh, I didn't want to suffer anymore. And seeing that, you know, after the insurrection happened and after the Biden administration continued stalling the processes that I needed in order to have a dignified life in America. And I saw that not going anywhere. And I saw them almost taking pleasure in my misfortune and I was done with it. I, I need to live, like, I don't wanna survive. I just need to live. And I also realized that because of the opportunities that the pandemic created, I, I see it this way. I left my home country because it didn't have what I needed to be happy in my work, right? And in my, what I see as my life mission. 
So what I did was that I went out into the world and I created the world that I needed to create in order to one day be able to come back to my home country for a few months or a few weeks, we don't know yet. And I could bring that world with me. So I'm home and I'm still seeing theater from the United States, from South America, from Europe, from Asia. Like I'm speaking at a conference in Singapore next month. And it made me realize that as much as I love New York and I love theater and I love people in New York so much, I don't need to be in New York anymore. Yeah, well, as I'm wrapping up, I think it's interesting. That's what the pandemic did is is give everybody perspective. And I think that idea, you know, of wanting to live versus survive is one that I think is vital because, you know, I think when people are re-examining a lot of what do they need, where do they want to live, what I mean, yours, uh, the economics of living in the country being challenging based on government policies that make it untenable. Um, but everything, everything, the challenges of living, <laughs> the challenges of living in this city and building a career and a life doing the arts is always challenging. And I think the pandemic has made people look and go, can I do it from somewhere else? Can I do it another way? Is there, and we all hope as we're looking at s- systemic change in an industry as well as a country that, um, that there are ways to do it that are more, uh, I want to say humane, but the other word I want to say is livable. You know, like you were talking about is you want to live. And I think that is actually, that's what I'm, it's one of the things I want to take away and carry with me from the, from this quarantine time is things that have been for my personal health. You know, it's like, oh, this gives me balance. This makes me feel just better. You know, I don't want to be in this struggle every day. So, uh, but I'm saying all that to say I should probably let you go because this has been a treat. Um, I should I should let you go, and you've said a ton of things, but I always ask the question. So I should say, if you thought of advice for anybody, I want to give you the opportunity to share it. Although you've exampled it throughout the whole conversation. This has been a pleasure for me also. Like I, I also remember when I talked to you on the phone when I was writing that piece for American Theater. And I was, I was, that's one of the things that I love about New York and that I will always love New York for. And I was talking to you uh, en route to go to a movie at Band. So I was talking to you like in a soup, in a soup from somewhere in Brooklyn. Uh, so my only piece of advice is something that I have learned because I have lived it. And I see that people spend, I call it my, my The Little Mermaid advice, because I see people spend their lifetimes in search of that mythical voice. And people are always being told, go find your voice, go, you know, go on those like, I don't know, like Iliad and Greek epic style, you know, quests for your voice. And what they don't tell us is that we have a voice and we are born with the voice, and we already had that. It's, again, very Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. But don't go in search of that voice. You have that voice. Start using it right now. Thank you, Jose. 
Okay, that was oh, that was great. It was great to talk to you. It was great to hear everything. I loved hearing the basically. You know, I always like to say like, how did that happen? How did that happen? How did that happen? And you know, I think as he said, the constant in his life is his passion and his pure love for it and his sharing of his love. I think like he's created a lot of so many opportunities for himself. The blog online and and stage buddy and and then putting out there hey i want to do the bipoc critic lab and 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 people inviting him seeing his passion seeing his work seeing his interest and inviting him in and saying hey would you like to do this would you like to do that and i think also engaging on twitter you can follow him on twitter it's always good but also i liked what he said about reaching out to people and asking questions and having that conversation and starting that dialogue really building the relationship at that point and it's fantastic and i love the last thing he said about you know find your authentic like not about finding your authentic voice on that idea of going on the quest but that you have it you have that authentic voice use it trust it use it you know what do people need right now to be a critic he was like opportunity so find the place i also like that he takes out the barrier of doesn't have to be written it can be podcasts like this it can be you know audio visual it can be whatever form works best for you. I never, it was really good to think about removing the barriers. I didn't think of it as a barrier, but I think, but I do think of it as gatekeepers. Like we think like, oh, New York Times or, you know, getting an American theater was a great honor for me when the farm got written up there. But I think like there are these gatekeepers of how to do that. And there are other ways to share opinions. And obviously people are listening. I hope they're listening. Hope you're listening to this podcast, you know, do it every week, uh, every two weeks. And so, you know, I'm going on the assumption that it's making, that it's reaching people. And, you know, it's the end of season three for us. And I'm really proud of what we did during the pandemic and that the conversations were continuing and that we were able to engage with really interesting guests and artists throughout and that you are listening. And I'm grateful for that. And before I say all my gratitude and thank you, I just also want to say, like, it was a great reminder. I asked a question about what's the critic's role as we're coming back. And I have to say... I thought that we were going to talk about whether it was about cheerleading or whether it was still being critical or, or what support was supposed to be given with systemic changes we wanted to see in theater. And Jose's answer, <laughs> that's why you ask the questions, you know, and don't answer them yourself. Like, because his answer surprised me and it was a little upsetting and refreshing to hear, uh, refreshing because it was honest. Uh, you know, we talked about maybe not coming back to New York because for him personally, not seeing the country changing just because the president changed and, you know, then the theater may not be changing because it's a reflection of the country. And I, I really valued hearing that because when I start to think about the things that are changing, I have to look and say, okay, well, they changed, changed for me, but did they change for other people? And I, I that's one of the things I loved about the conversation with Jose is like he... We obviously both share a passion for theater and uh, and love for it, and also uh, and you know and creating opportunities. I love the fact that he started the BIPOC Critic Club, and you know it's one of the reasons I started the farms. I wanted to create opportunities for other people, and but at the same time, it was just great to hear his articulation of his experience and the way he wants to see the world, and I and I agree with it. Uh, I want to see the world in a similar way. So it's just, but it was really. It was good to get focused in on that, and I was so happy to hear his answer uh, because it was 
not just about theater, it was about life. And I think as we're exiting out of the pandemic, the thing we talked about is finding that thing that makes you live and not just survive. And, um, you know, I thought that was, I really appreciated that. I really appreciate it. I love the whole conversation. And I'm, and so thank you. And on that, I'm going to say thank you. I, I've enjoyed season three. We're going to, you know, continue to drop episodes that people may have missed or want to revisit uh, over the summer. And we will pick up. And when we do pick up, we will, you know, be talking to people who are probably actively engaged with doing theater in front of people or with people in person. And that is thrilling. Uh, again, always share with us what you're doing love to promote it any way we can and um and thank you for listening and thank you again if you're on apple podcast and you give five-star review it helps people find it share with people about the podcast i love it anytime we get new listeners is great i and write to us if there's anything you want to hear about especially as we're planning a next season um but with that i just want to thank everybody uh all of our guests all the listeners hudson who does sound editing Andre Frado, who did our music composition, Monique Carboni, who did uh, who's our graphics person, and you know just everybody who who helps with the pod. It's really the bullpen sessions have been great, and one of the things that I am proud of and enjoyed during this entire season of the pandemic is feeling, hearing how people are engaged, how they're continuing to work, and also to stay connected to all of you, and. Uh, with that, we're out.